The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Well, we're going to start in chapter 9, but you need to remember that when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, there were no chapter breaks. There were no verses. Chapter breaks came along later, and verses came along much later. And you might know that chapter breaks have limited advantages. They can help us locate passages quickly. Other than that, there are no other advantages that I can think of. But the disadvantages are many because oftentimes chapter breaks will break the flow of a passage and give the false appearance that one passage has ended and a new passage is beginning. So in order for us to get a a good feel for 1 Corinthians 9, I want us to read the last verse of chapter 8 and move in like there's no chapter break, all right? So Paul concludes chapter 8 with these words, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Am I not free Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake, or most assuredly for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And we will end our reading there. 
Now, <clears throat> when we get to First uh, Corinthians chapter nine, there is a, a huge question, and that is, what is the relationship or the connection of chapter nine to chapter eight? And I hope that as as you read your Bibles, you ask yourself questions as you read. And ask yourself questions like, how is this related to this? What's the logical connection? How does this flow? Because remember, in Scripture, especially in the epistles, the writers are making arguments. They're not just throwing out... um, you know, disconnected pearls on a string for you to find your happy verse for the day and and live on that. These are arguments, and so there's a relationship, and so we should be asking ourselves, how in the world is chapter 9 related to chapter 8? Now, some people, some commentators, have argued that when you get to chapter 9, that Paul just goes on this big rabbit trail. He digresses, and uh, in fact, it, the, um, the content of chapter 9, some would say, is so absolutely disconnected from chapter 8 that Paul's not even concerned anymore about the issue of eating food sacrificed to idols. I think that that is a, a big mistake. I think that we have a responsibility to come to chapter 9 and wrestle hard with how does it fit with chapter 8. Because if we don't see the connection, if we don't see how it fits, then we're not going to understand chapter 9 as we ought to. Right? So, I'd like to point out a few things to you that show that, first of all, there is a connection, a relationship, okay? Now, I'm not saying what it is right now. I'm just saying that there is one. What do you notice as you read verse 13 of chapter 8 and then move immediately to chapter 9, verse 1? So forget the chapter break is there. What do you notice? Okay, it's continuous thought. You know how we know it's a continuous thought? Okay. Okay. All right, that's a little longer than what I was anticipating. Okay. The, the, just just notice just a minor detail. There's no connecting word in verse 1. There's no and, there's no therefore, there's no for, there's no because. This, this is uh, actually a... Um, it's a rhetorical device called ascendaton, meaning no transition... You go right from verse 13 of what Paul says he's willing to do for the sake of others, and then without any transition whatsoever, 
he begins to ask a series of rhetorical questions. The fact that there's no transition, the fact that there's no conjunction, there's the fact that there's no um, words that make any sort of contrast or connection actually shows us that there is, in a sense, a, a seamless transition of thought. Okay? In other words, it's connected. There's no way to try to um, think that Paul's moving on to something because there's simply no indication that he's moving on. He makes the comment in verse 13, and then without connection, without transition, just boom, goes right into a series of rhetorical questions. Why is that important? Well, because most of the time when there's a transition, um, or if there's a movement to a new topic, there are indicators. Here, there are no indicators whatsoever just goes right into the next section, okay? The other thing that is worth noting is that even though it looks like Paul is talking now about something else, throughout this whole chapter, he's going to continue to use key words from chapter 8, and in particular, the key words freedom and authority or rights, He's going to continue to use those throughout chapter 9. And so there is really, there's no doubt that what Paul is doing is um, making a connection between these two chapters. They are related in a way that we cannot miss. But there's something else. Uh, Does anybody remember um, what I said the the section was when we got to chapter 8? Chapter 8, the, this, the section, the unit, goes from 8.1 to 11.1. Okay? I don't know if you remember that or not. but So it's a big chunk. It's a big section. Now, look at verse 13 again. Paul says, therefore, verse eight, uh, chapter 8, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Now look at chapter 11, verse 1, the last verse of the unit. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. You see the connection between the two verses. On the one hand, 8.13 Paul is summarizing that first section of the unit where he says, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'm never going to eat meat again. And the way that he concludes the entire unit is, be an imitator of me as I also am an imitator of Christ. So in in other words, 8.13 and 11.1, Paul is setting himself up as a model to the Corinthians for them to follow, and in a sense, those are bookend verses so that everything in between is connected together. Now, we still haven't said what the, what the connection is. We haven't identified what Paul's doing in, in the section. Um, some, in fact, some commentators that I really, really like say that what Paul's doing is he's defending his apostleship or he's defending himself against the criticisms of the Corinthians. Um, 
I love David Garland's comment. He says, the major question to answer then is not whether chapter 9 fits the context, but how it fits the context. All right? So, is it possible that as Paul's dealing with the Corinthians, okay, as we have it in 1 Corinthians, that there could have been some, uh, let's say, some rumblings against Paul. Is that possible? Sure, absolutely. Um, I, I have no doubt that there probably were some rumblings of criticism, just knowing the pride and the arrogance of the Corinthian assembly. That, that is probably a given. But let's, let's consider a few things in, uh, in the context to kind of help us get a, a roadmap to see what Paul is trying to do. You might think that I'm just belaboring a point here, and maybe I am, but let me just say why it's important. If you think Paul's defending his apostleship, you're going to read 1 Corinthians 9 one way. If you think that he's not and he's doing something else, you're going to read it a different way. In other words, the bigger picture of what you assume the roadmap is is going to determine how you understand the text, all right? So, uh, I think it's important for us to, to think about this. Now, what Paul is going to do is, I, I don't think Paul's digressing. I think in, in 1 Corinthians 9, what Paul is doing is he's taking the argument of 1 Corinthians 8, and he is... He's taking it farther. He's driving it deeper than what that, in a sense, introduction had done, all right? And what he's going to do, I think, is he's going to use himself as an example of somebody who voluntarily, out of love, waves their freedoms and their rights for the sake of other people, okay? Now... <clears throat> Let me just say it's going to take him a long time to do this. And I don't know why it takes him so long to do this. I heard, um, I think it was Derek Thomas the other day, talking about John Owen, and he said John Owen had the gift of, of taking what you could say in a 1,000 words and, and taking 10,000. <laughs> and, uh, of course, that was, that was a Puritan gift. And I don't know really, I mean, Paul's argument here is in one sense sort of simple and straightforward, and that is, I'm using myself as an example of one who's given up rights and liberties for the sake of others so that I don't hinder the gospel. That's going to be the main point. But the way that he gets there is incredibly detailed. And so by the time he, he, he makes certain concluding statements, we have to go a, a couple of paragraphs. Right, so there's a, it's it's a little challenging. Uh, so the big question that I want us to think about now is: Were the Corinthians actually just challenging Paul's authority? So let's think about this idea that Paul's defending his uh, apostleship. So um, <clears throat> by the time you get to Second Corinthians, were there big pockets of resistance to Paul's authority? Absolutely, right. Um, but 
1 Corinthians is, is not the same exact situation as 2 Corinthians. Again, there may have been criticisms here and there, uh, but it doesn't seem that there was this significant challenge to Paul's authority. So how do I know that? Well, I'm assuming that because 1 Corinthians is Paul, in part, answering questions asked of him by the Corinthians. We know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, concerning the things which you wrote to me, and then Paul begins to answer questions that were posed to him by the Corinthians. So let me just say that if the Corinthians were sort of wholesale in opposition to Paul, why would they take the time to write him a letter to ask him questions to get his opinion? Right? I don't think that, I don't think that, that fits the context. Second, uh, throughout chapter 9, Paul does not write in a defensive posture, defending himself as an apostle. Now, how do we know that? Well, because we have an example of Paul writing from a defensive posture, defending his apostleship. And where do we have that example? I I hear little whispers here and there, but... Okay, 2 Corinthians, yeah... But we, we have an, an earlier letter, Galatians. Okay, Galatians. Does Paul have to defend his apostleship to the Galatian assemblies? And the answer is absolutely. Why? Because his apostleship was coming under attack from the Judaizers. And for Paul, when his apostleship was under attack, it wasn't that that was a, a personal insult that he had to Uh, vindicate himself against. When Paul saw his apostleship under attack, what he saw under attack was not him, but the gospel. Because to reject Paul's apostolic ministry was also in turn to reject Paul's gospel. And that's what's abundantly clear in Galatians chapter 1, for instance. And Paul is robust in his defense of his apostleship. You don't have that same character or stance here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's just not there. Okay? Um, <clears throat> some people point to verse 3 of chapter 9. My defense to those who examine me is this. And the, the question then ends up being, um, is Paul actually stating that there's real opposition to him that he now needs to give a defense to? And the The answer is, is that if there was opposition that he needed to defend himself against, he actually ends up not defending himself. He ends up using himself as an example, not defending himself. All right? Am I I making sense tonight? Okay? All right. I just want to just make sure. And so I would say that when you read verse 3, my defense of those who examine me is this, is is that Paul is not going to turn around and give a defense of his apostleship per se, but what he's going to do is he's going to talk about how he has renounced his own rights, which as an apostle, by the way, which would be really peculiar if he was defending his apostleship. 
In other words, the, the, the flow of the argument in 1 Corinthians 9 is, I'm an apostle and I could do these things, but I freely give up my rights as an apostle to do these things. And that doesn't really sound like you better recognize me as an apostle. So I would say that Paul's using himself as an example here. And again, if his apostleship is under attack, it would be a little strange to make your defense using yourself as an example. So, there's no doubt that by the time we get to 2 Corinthians, there are pockets of resistance to Paul, and that is, you read chapters 10 through 13, and that is absolutely clear. His relationship with the Corinthians does, in fact, deteriorate, which I take that to mean that his argument here doesn't actually persuade as strongly as he had hoped. Um, verse 3, when he says, um, my defense uh, of those who examine me is this, I think is probably a, a rhetorical device um, where Paul is, in a sense, anticipating possible objections to what he is about to say. So, think about the context for a minute. Here are the Corinthians, and uh, give me some of our Conventional descriptive words that we've used of the Corinthians over the last however long we've been in 1 Corinthians. Pride. What's that? What? Carnal. Okay, yeah. Now, they don't think they're carnal. They think they are super spiritual, okay? Proud, super spiritual. (laughs) Yeah, they... It's not just a matter of we practice our liberties. It is that we insist on these as our right. Okay? Okay? So regardless of what anybody else thinks, because we have the knowledge. So proud, super spiritual, elite. Okay? A love of so-called knowledge a love of so-called wisdom, which they they end up getting wrong because they refuse to see wisdom and knowledge through the weakness of the cross. Okay, so I mean, that's that's Paul's one of Paul's whole points at the beginning is you don't know anything about wisdom or knowledge because you don't see it through the cross. Okay, it's in the weakness of the cross that God demonstrates his what his power. Right? That's another thing the Corinthians love, power. They love power religion. They love the super spiritual. They love the, they love the flashy. They love the showy. They love, they love the, the bombastic. They love the ostentatious. I mean, they, you could easily see the Corinthians just simply being 21st century American Christians. Right? I mean, they love all the stuff that we not hopefully not we, but we love David. They're, they're bumper sticker theology, right? So they have these slogans, right? And these slogans drive the way that they, that they, they it shapes their worldview, right? So here comes Paul, and Paul has a big task at hand, right? What is he trying to do? 
Paul is trying to, to turn the ship of the Corinthian church back to the simplicity and the weakness of the cross. In a sense, what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to simply get the Corinthians back to the simplicity and power of the gospel. Because to them, the gospel is, that's just, that's kindergarten. That's Christianity 101. We're so far beyond that. And, and, and here's the thing about Paul's theology is you never, ever, ever outgrow the cross. You don't get beyond the cross. You don't get beyond Christ. Guess what? You just drill down deeper. You don't go beyond. And the Corinthians thought, man, we're on a trajectory. Um, we even know the tongues of angels, right? And Paul is going to say to them here, choose to be without. How do you think that's going to fare with this congregation? Choose to be without. Choose to waive your rights. Choose to put others first out of love. Choose to do absolutely everything to make sure you don't put a stumbling block for the gospel. Right? So if if that's where Paul's going, do you think he's anticipating the fact that they're not really going to like this. Okay? This really isn't part of the, the message, but in a lot of ways, we have to guard our hearts to make sure that we're not thinking like the Corinthians. Because we all have, we all have our, um, our little our little pet peeves that are our, our little soapboxes are our, 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 our issues that, that, that we think are the big defining things for Christianity. And the fact is, is no, that's actually just your little tiny soapbox. And we get them, we get them confused. And we start to think that there are certain things about the way that we think and, and, and the way that we, that we live that, that, that must be part and parcel of Christianity. And it simply may not be. I'm, I'm as patriotic as, as anybody here. But the gospel is not conservative politics. The gospel is not Republican. The gospel... <laughs> the gospel is not even exclusively American. Jesus' people actually are 
from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, whether Jew or Greek, bond or free, male or female, are all one in Christ, whether barbarian or Scythian or Roman or Jew, makes no difference. The, the, the gospel is, is, is truly, in the best sense, multicultural, multiracial, and it transcends the stars and stripes. Okay. The gospel transcends our own personal convictions. Is it good to have personal convictions? And the answer is yes. Is it good to have personal convictions about parenting? And the answer is yes. But your personal convictions about parenting are not the gospel. So you know what that means? Is that means that if you love the gospel, you dare not substitute the gospel with your personal convictions. Because if you love the gospel, you always know the gospel is bigger than my personal convictions. The gospel may drive me in my own personal convictions, but the gospel is not defined by my personal convictions. Do you know what else that means? That means that if we love the gospel, we stop judging each other over personal convictions. Hmm. <laughs> you can you can smoke too, Bob. I mean, I <laughs> I don't care, you know. Um but here's this is this is this is a call for us to stop being Corinthian. Okay? You're going to have people that disagree with you over things that you think are sacrosanct, and in fact they're not. And so, what the gospel does is the gospel should liberate us to love people and to love people that are different than us and to love people that are um, that that do things different than us and and even think differently than us the gospel actually is not something that says if you walk with the same goose step that I walk we, we can walk together the gospel says I love you whether you're running or stumbling or goose-stepping. And whether you're going at the same pace as me or not. Gospel actually liberates Christians not to judge each other and condemn each other and criticize each other. The gospel liberates Christians to love each other. The Corinthians didn't get it. The Corinthians thought that everybody else had to come up to the same plane as them if they were to really be able to have fellowship with them. In a sense, what Paul says is, is our fellowship is around a crucified Savior. Our fellowship is around a, a Messiah that was raised from the dead. Well, that was free. So is Paul expecting some pushback on this? And the answer is absolutely. Absolutely. Um, 
David Garland makes the comment, he says, he may have been aware that some in Corinth were disgruntled with his mode of operation, but his purpose here is not to defend it. Instead, he argues from the basis of his own conduct. And so I think that we have a a passage where Paul's not really defending himself as much as what he is doing is he is explaining the the power of giving up your rights and your liberties for the sake of love for other people. And he uses himself, as it were, as an example to do that very thing. So let's, um, let's jump in. I don't know how far we'll get tonight, but Paul starts with these four rhetorical questions, right? Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord. And guess what? All four of those questions expect what for an answer? Yes. <laughs> here's, here's one of the beautiful things about the Greek New Testament is that when you ask a question, you can tell somebody how they're supposed to answer it. You're expecting a yes in a answer or a no answer. And Paul frames each one of these rhetorical questions with a little particle at the beginning indicating that he is expecting a yes answer. And so the idea is is that um, you, you could translate it something like this. I mean, this would sort of ruin the rhetorical effect, but uh, Paul would say, um, as you well know, I'm free. As you well know, I'm an apostle. As you well know, I've seen our Lord Jesus. As you well know, you are my work in the Lord. Okay? So... When he starts off and he says these things, what is he doing? Well, he's reminding them of his authority and of his high calling, but not to lord it over them, but to use as an example. So, am I not free? What did Paul mean, am I not free? Well, in light of chapter 8... Don't you think that the question is connected and he starts there, am I not free? Why not start with something weightier like, am I not an apostle? Why start with, am I not free? Well, because that is the issue and he needs them to get to, uh, he needs them to start looking at freedom differently. And so he talks about giving up freedom at the end of chapter eight. And then he turns around and says, am I not free? And the answer is, of course I am. Next question, am I not an apostle? Answer, of course he is. In fact, when he says, am I not an apostle, you know what he's doing at that point is he's reminding them of his status. So the first question reminds them of the liberty that he has. The second question reminds them of the status that he has as an apostle. And then he throws in this one to boot. Have I not seen our Lord? And the answer, of course, is yes. Why is that important? Because one of the qualifications for being an apostle is having seen the resurrected Jesus. Okay? It's one of the qualifications. And so Paul is, in a sense, saying... Have I not had the most amazing and qualifying 
privilege you could imagine that undergirds my authority, that is, seeing the Lord Jesus, and the answer is yes. Now, by the way, when Paul talks about his privilege of having seen the resurrected Lord, he always does it with humility, doesn't he? In fact, you remember how he describes his own experience of seeing the risen Lord in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? He talks about himself as, after having been a witness to the Lord's, uh, to the resurrected Lord, he then turns around and he says, what? But I am the least of all the apostles. As one untimely born. So don't think that Paul's wielding this, I've seen the resurrected Jesus, whack, you haven't, whack, take that. He is reminding them of his elevated status as an apostle, not to brag, but to set up the illustration. And then he turns around and he says, are you not my work or my labor in the Lord? And so here are these Corinthians. And by the way, this is, this is a reminder to the Corinthians Um, of the simple fact that if it were not for Paul's missionary church-planting labors, they would not exist. It was his efforts at going into Corinth and preaching the gospel in the face of much hostility and being tenacious for 18 months planting that church in Corinth, and, and it was Paul who actually did the hard work and, and, and was responsible for doing what? The language of 1 Corinthians 3, laying that foundation of Jesus Christ. It was Paul who laid that foundation in Corinth. And, and so he says, you know, I planted, Apollos watered, it was God that gave the increase I laid the foundation. No one else can lay any other foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. I did that. He turns around and he says later in 1 Corinthians 4, 15, although you have many tutors in Christ, you only have one father, and that's me. In other words, Paul says, listen, if it wasn't for me and the preaching of the gospel that came through me and the missionary labors that God used through me, there would be no Corinthian church. Are you not my labor in the Lord? Yes, you are. You are. Then he says this in verse 2. If I'm not an apostle to others, I am indeed to you. Now, is Paul asserting that some people maybe did not accept his apostleship? And the answer is, that's possible, right? Because the Judaizers wouldn't have accepted Paul's apostleship, right? You remember the Judaizers' complaint about Paul as an apostle was that he wasn't one of the Jerusalem apostles. He wasn't one of the pillar apostles apostles, right? So you can imagine there were probably pockets here and there that thought that Paul was not an apostle, but more likely, I think that he's actually just setting up a hypothetical, emphasizing the fact that regardless of what anybody else thinks of him, he is at least their apostle, right? The Corinthians, in a real sense, have no other apostle than Paul. 
It's not to say they wouldn't have recognized the, the apostleship of the other apostles. But, but what Paul's saying is, listen, I myself am the one that is your apostle. And you know it. Then he says, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. What does he mean by that? Later in 2 Corinthians, he's going to call them his letter of validation, something like that. Here, you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You remember, um, as we've talked about this from time to time, uh, what, what did a seal in the ancient world do? Okay, it, it, was a, it, was a, it was a show of authority. So, now, by the way, we still have um, uh, reflections of this, right? So if you get a letter from the governor of Nevada, what's going to be at the top of the letterhead? The seal of the great state of Nevada, right? And the seal is a reflection of the authority of the one sending, all right? Um, But seals actually had other functions as well. Uh, A seal was, in a sense, a proof of authenticity, okay? So, we don't really have this, but um, we we did see this in the the Judah story, and that is uh, a seal often would be in the form of like a signet ring, okay? Which was absolutely unique to the person who owned it, okay? And that signet ring could be used for a number of things. It could be used as an official seal, demonstrating their authority, but it could also, in a sense, be a a stamp of authenticity. This is how you know this came from so-and-so, all right? Um, I don't know that we really do that too much. I, I can't think of an example, Nathan. Okay, okay, yeah, all right, good, that's, that's a good example. So a birth certificate has a stamp, has a seal, authenticating this as, this is proof that you actually are who you say you are, whatever. Um, transcripts, same thing, Dusty. Branding cattle is an excellent example, absolutely. And uh, what's that? College diplomas, um, if you watch Bonanza, the branding thing is it, there are whole episodes devoted to branding cattle and whose cattle they really are. So, very good. Charlie, what's that? Passport, Passport sure. So, there are all these things that, that, are, uh, that seals demonstrate some authenticity. That's what Paul's probably getting at here. You, Corinthians, are the seal of my apostleship. That is, you are God's stamp of approval on my apostolic ministry. You are, um, God's work among you is a reflection of my authenticity as an apostle. So in other words, Paul goes into Corinth, and what does he do? He goes and he preaches the gospel, and the gospel comes not with word only, but also with power in the Holy Spirit, and their faith does not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God, and people are saved, and the church is built, and their very existence as 
as the church of God at Corinth was a stamp of approval and a reflection of authenticity on Paul's apostolic ministry. So what's the point of verses 1 and 2? Well, the point is, is that Paul is basically saying, you cannot deny my authority nor my status. It's undeniable. It's unquestionable. All that's required for those uh, for that authenticity to be there is there, and you know it, right? Now, again, he's not, he's not defending that. He's using it as a background for what the argument is going to be, all right? So verses 3 through 14. So, verse 3. My defense, my apologia to those who examine me is this. Now, again, I don't think Paul really necessarily has anybody in mind in particular. He's using a rhetorical advice, what, a device, and what he's doing is he's now anticipating his objections that will come to him, all right? So Paul expects the Corinthians not to immediately understand 8.13, so he's going to use his life as a demonstration of it so think of verse 3 as the preemptive strike. Okay? That's what verse 3 is. It's preemptive strike. And so Paul says this. He says, he, by the way, so this is, this is sort of a funny part. How many of you have New American Standards? Okay. And then how many of you have ESVs? Okay. All right. So um, NAS on this side, ESV on this side. And when I say go, just never mind. All right. Now, we have some questions in verses 4 and 5. You have to pay close attention to the questions because technically the questions expect a no answer, but they're all framed with a negative. All right? Now, in English, we don't put two negatives together, right? because of a simple logical thing in our brain that says two negatives do what? They cancel each other out. And so the way that these questions function goes something like this. Are we without this right? And the answer is no, we're not. Okay? So you have a sense of double negative. So, it's a little, so, so this is the funny part. So... Um, you could just do it clearly and just say, do we not, or just turn around and say, yes, we do, right? So Paul says here, he says, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Okay. Now, eat and drink. Is eating and drinking a big deal in chapter 8? Big deal, right? So it's not an accident. This is the way it starts. But I take eat and drink to be, in a sense, the material support, the necessities of life, right? So do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we, didn't notice this, this is, this is peculiar. Do we not have the right to take along a a believing wife. The Greek text says a 
sister wife. A sister wife. Which in the first century in the church, with the emphasis on the idea of the family of God, the sister wife is a believing wife. All right? Don't we have a right to take along a believing wife? And then Paul says, even as the rest of the apostles. So what does this indicate? That the rest of the apostles took along their wives as they ministered. And then he says, and the brothers of our Lord. So at least James and Jude, right? And so they were known to take their wives and Cephas, meaning Peter. And of course, we know that Peter had a wife. How do we know Peter had a wife? Because in Mark 2, Jesus actually heals Peter's mother-in-law. And what do you have to have in order to have a mother-in-law? To have a wife. See how logic can serve you in the study of Scripture? Now, this is further evidence that Paul's using rhetorical questions here. Why? Paul didn't have a wife. So the question itself is, is not, don't I have the right to go on apostlematch.com and find somebody? It's not the, that's not the question. The, the, the question is, don't I have a right? In other words, it's hypothetical. If I had a wife, wouldn't I have the right to bring her along like everybody else does? Now, <clears throat> verse 6. If you have the ESV, pay very close attention. If you have the NAS, pay very close attention. If you have any other translation, pay very close attention. Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Did you follow that? Read verse 6 again, because this is sort of the capstone of Paul's questions in verse, verses 4 and 5. Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Let me just say why Barnabas is probably mentioned. Barnabas is probably mentioned here not only because the Corinthians would have known Barnabas or known about Barnabas, because Barnabas probably adopted the same policies as Paul, okay? Now, do we not have, literally the text reads, do we not have the right not to work? Did you see the way the NAS did it? Do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? ESV. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Does that sound different? You have to understand that what's what's happening is you have a you have a double negative in the question, and the translators are trying to figure out how to make it sound the most accurate. Now, to me, the NAS is confusing a little bit. ESV is a little better. Only Barnabas, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Now, really what Paul's asking here in a way that seemed a little convoluted to us is, 
is it only Barnabas and I who have to work for our support? That's what he's asking. That's the question. So it's, it's strangely put with the double negatives, but the basic question is, is are, are you saying that it's only Barnabas and I who have to actually go out and manually work with our hands for our support? Okay. And the implied answer should be a negative. Okay. Now... Paul then goes into three examples in verse 7 from the realm of nature. Okay. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? And so there, is, there are three examples. And so Paul says, when somebody, when somebody enlists to be a soldier, whoever is responsible for having to take along their own provisions and their own rations? That's not the way it works. Who provides for the soldier? The army that he's serving provides for the soldier. The, the, the provisions and the rations come to him, and they come to him, by the way, without charge. They come to him by virtue of him soldiering. And who would go and be a farmer and plant a vineyard and not actually partake of some of the fruit? Right? In other words... The field of labor has certain benefits for those who labor. So if you plant a vineyard, you have every right to do what? To go out and and eat some of the grapes. And if you are tending a flock, you have every right to go out and get some of the milk. In other words, there there is an assumed subsistence that is yours if that is your field of labor. Now, I told you that Paul goes about this the long way. Because now he's going to turn around and he's going to say, and the law teaches us the same thing. Now, in a sense, his argument is clear and it's totally sufficient, right? You get the point. But he's not done. And so, what Paul then does in verse 8 He says, I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? In other words, I'm not just using examples from nature, right? He says, or does not the law also say these things? And so, guess what you're expecting? You're expecting some passage in the law that's going to talk about the right a person has in order uh, to, to take from their field of labor for their subsistence. And of course, what does he do? He then says... It's written in the law of Moses. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? I find it somewhat humorous that when Paul's talking about the support of pastors, he uses oxen as as an illustration. Now, uh, let me just say a couple of things real quick about this, and that is um, David Garland makes the comment, he says, how Paul interprets this passage about not muzzling an ox has drawn more attention from scholars than the point that he draws from it. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, um, 
It's really terrific. Paul's using a passage from Deuteronomy 25.4. And so you know what Paul's point is, right? So, hey, you, get, you have a right to get a living from your field of labor, and this is what the law teaches because the law says don't muzzle an ox while it's threshing wheat. What was the point? Well, if the ox is doing the work, it's on the threshing floor, it's got that yoke, and he's going around in circles, he has the right to stop and eat from the result of his labor. And Paul says, God's not concerned with oxen, is he? That doesn't make animal rights people very happy because, of course, God is concerned about oxen. Is God concerned about oxen? Be careful how you answer. Of course he is. But what's Paul's point? Paul's point is, by the way, if you go back and you read Deuteronomy 25, you begin to realize that throughout Deuteronomy 25, there are a number of passages that deal with protecting the rights of others in Deuteronomy 25. An oxen is thrown in there. Now, Paul's point is quite simple, and that is, in a sense, from the lesser to the greater. If God was going to protect and provide for a dumb ox... Don't you think he would be concerned to provide for those who labor in the gospel? That's his point. If you don't muzzle an ox, don't muzzle the preacher. That's the idea. Now, he then quotes some unknown non-canonical source. There's debate as to where it comes from. Verse 10, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing crops. And so Paul, again, Paul's actually just making the same point again. But verse 11, if we sowed, here's the principle, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? What's the answer? If we sowed these spiritual things, is it that big a deal if we reap material things? The answer is, of course it's not a big deal. In fact, there's something normal about it. There's something natural about it. Nature proves it. The law proves it, right? And so, Paul is basically saying, listen, um, as, as we labor for your spiritual good, there is something that is simply right about us being able to reap material blessing from you in exchange for the spiritual blessing that's been bestowed on you through our ministry. And then he does this, and this is, this is really fascinating. He says, if others share the right over you, that is what? To reap material things for spiritual blessing. If others share the right over you, do we not more? 
This again goes back to the beginning of the, of the, of the chapter. Because of our status, because of who we uh, are, because of what I've put into your lives through Christ, do you not think? So if other people are, it, let's just put it crassly, if other people are passing the plate, don't we have even more of a right considering our role in your life? And then he says, nevertheless, we did not use this right. Now, finally, he's getting to his first point. We had the right. We superlatively had the right. And we did not use it. And then he says, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Here's, here's, Paul's, here's Paul's first point. So in these first 14 verses, here it is. We have the right, we have the freedom, we have the status, we are laborers. God's law says laborers should be supported, and there are people who exercise that right over you, And if anybody had a right to do that, it would be us, but we didn't do it. We didn't use the right that we had. We didn't use the authority that we had. We didn't use the freedom that we had. And the reason was for the sake of the gospel. In fact, it was more than just we didn't use it for the sake of the gospel. It was we endured all things so that there would be no hindrance to the gospel. Remember, when Paul goes to Corinth, you know what he does? He works with his own hands. He labors with his own hands. By the way, later, he will actually say to the Corinthians to shame them, we robbed other churches so we didn't have to work when we were here with you. So we didn't have to take your money, really. Now, and this is little, I know it's 8 o'clock. Let me, just, let me just ask one simple question. How would Paul taking money from the Corinthians, taking support for his ministry, how would that have been a hindrance? Did Paul take support from other churches? Absolutely. He doesn't in Corinth, and he doesn't for a reason. And this is, this is actually one of the ways in which background helps us kind of understand. So Paul says, you know, the poor Macedonian churches, they sent us a gift. The poor saints in Philippi sent us a gift. We lived on that gift so that we didn't have to take any money from you, Corinthians. Why? Didn't want the gospel to be hindered in any way. So how in the world would that have been a hindrance? the Corinthians would have been accustomed to what would have been called a patronage system. They would have been very accustomed to this idea where there would be a person who was a patron or a benefactor who would then, and normally it was for orators or philosophers, 
Okay, but this was the system. So, so uh, Philosopher X comes into town, and Philosopher X is incredibly popular. And uh, and 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 Arnie says, "You know what? I'll be your patron." And he pays the bills, and he puts him up, and he gives him the the honorariums and and so forth. But guess what else? Uh, he gets to exert special influence, certain claims of special friendship. You're my beneficiary, right? And so I think that when Paul says, I didn't, I gave up this right when I was with you, I think that Paul was not convinced that the Corinthians would have supported him without baggage. And he knew that that baggage would be a hindrance to the gospel. Yes, and that's a dangerous combination when you're writing the checks, right? That is a, so, quick story. Ariel says I tell too many stories. She's probably right. And then if I tell it over again, she's like, that's an old story. You should stop telling that. So, there was a church up in a city where I used to live in the early 90s that will go unnamed, all right? In Oregon, <laughs> northwestern corner. Anyway, there was a, a, a really, 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 really super rich guy who helped out all of the Christian schools and the seminaries, and he actually paid money to have his own church, hired a pastor. Now, he never went to the church, except on rare occasion. Okay, you get in the picture? He pays the pastor's paycheck. He supports the church. The church is known for having a food bank in the community. And over time, the pastor is preaching the word. And the rich guy doesn't really like what's being preached. And so guess what happens? There's a showdown. Am I going to make a decision to appease the benefactor in order to keep getting the money? Here's how you justify it. To feed the poor in our community. Right? Or do I tell them to take a hike? If I keep getting the paycheck, it's going to hinder the gospel, right? I think Paul found himself in a situation in Corinth where he knew they, they were not ready to actually support him in the work of the ministry, and because of their pride, and because of their ignorance, and because of their elitism, and because of the way they viewed power and authority, that if they were the ones supporting... And so what Paul says is, you know what? I don't want your money. Try that on TBN. Don't send me any money. Don't want your money. Why? 
I want to be free to preach the gospel. That's Paul's point. The pastor stood up. He did. The pastor stood up. Yes. Well, they didn't have a church anymore. So they went and they started a new little group of people. But uh, he didn't stand up right away, though. Okay? He did over time. But you could well imagine Paul's just like, if I take a dollar from you, that could hinder the gospel. Right? I'll let the poor Philippians support me. You rich Corinthians, just pay attention. Right? Amen? All right. Well, I know that was tedious tonight. I thank you for your patience. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for the model that he is. We thank you for, uh, Lord, the, the treasure that you've given us through him in the Scriptures, in the New Testament. And we thank you, Father, for a man who stood on conviction and principle and stood with courage. And, Father, we pray that we would learn from him. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.